Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I think something else wrong. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one look. Watch him and move. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be... I harm someone each time I... Kill someone to be an enormous amount, of, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. In 1984, Richard Farley met new co-worker Laura Black at the Sunnyvale, California office of their employer ESL. He was instantly attracted to Laura and asked her out on numerous occasions, but she politely refused his advances. Unwilling to take no for an answer, Farley proceeded to stalk Laura relentlessly. After four years of Farley's constant harassment, Laura saw no option but to take out a temporary restraining order against him. A court date was set for February 17, 1988 to make the order permanent. On February 16th, Richard Farley went on a shooting spree at ESL, murdering seven people and wounding four others. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. Yeah, because murder ain't funny. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then bloody murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our strawberry milkshake-flavoured first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. Ooh, strawberry milkshake, pink danger. Yum! 
As a patron, you'll also have access to exclusive patron-only episodes where we pretty much do what we do in the regular episodes, but while drinking banana daiquiris with jorts-wearing monkeys. They Woo. bring us the banana daiquiris. Oh, yeah, but they drink half of them on the way over. They you do. You don't get many. No, you don't get much. And uh, boy, do they party on in their little jorts, little banana daiquiri-covered jorts. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges, and levels $10 and above get a selection of bloody legendary merchandise. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. When people think of stalkers, many assume that they're awkward social outcasts simply suffering from a case of unrequited love. Or they wonder if they have serious mental health issues. These factors can certainly play a role, but they don't in this case. Richard Farley was able to seem like an upstanding member of his community the entire four years that he stalked co-worker Laura Black. During this period, he was continuously employed, had friends, got engaged and even lived with his fiancée without her knowing he was terrorising another woman the whole time. According to the Washington Post, California was the first state to pass an anti-stalking law in 1990, a year after four women in Orange County were killed despite temporary restraining orders against men who were stalking them. This law was enacted too late to be of benefit to Laura Black and the other victims of the ESL mass shooting. Now, let's get in our hot tub time machine and go back to the very beginning of this horrendous shit show. Richard Wade Farley was born on July 25, 1948, at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. He was the eldest of six children to an aircraft mechanic father and homemaker mother. Due to his dad's work, the family moved around a lot, but when Farley was seven years old, they settled in Petaluma, California. His mother later stated in court that there was much love in the house, but the family displayed little outward affection. Ah, a secret love. Farley's mother claimed that he was pretty much a perfect, starry-eyed, halo-wearing, sweet angel child growing up. However, neighbour Lois Aquinto saw things differently. She later testified that she'd seen him be real rough with his brothers, twisting their arms, sitting on them and stepping on their fingers. He probably farted on their heads. Oh, yeah. I imagine there were some nipple cripples. Some little brother teabagging, perhaps? I am quietly confident some wedgies transpired. Atomic wedgies. Maybe some fly spray under the door? I had friends that did that. <laughs> you still have friends that do that. Not me. According to court documents, in high school, Farley was a quiet kid who did not smoke, drink, use drugs or spray fly spray under his brother's doors. He preferred hitting the books, photography, playing table tennis, chess and baking. Ah, table tennis. Not that shitty huge table tennis thingy. Do you mean like real tennis? Yeah, huge tennis is crap. Regular tennis for me, Tara, on a table. Farley got good grades and went on to junior college after graduating from high school, but he only lasted there a year. How come? I couldn't find any information on his reasoning, but I don't know, maybe there were not enough table tennis tables. Or too many. <laughs> Perhaps. In 1967, 19-year-old Farley made like a village people song that had yet to be written and joined the Navy. He served for 10 years, during which time he took multiple psychological tests and passed them all with flying colours. He mostly worked as a cryptologic technician, which involved working with classified electronic systems. According to court documents, because the Navy's cryptologic function was a highly classified mission, the Office of Naval Intelligence investigated all cryptologic technicians to determine whether they could be granted top secret clearance. That's how we do it here at Bloody Murder. 
Shh, hush your mouth, you've said too much. You shush, shushy. In November 1968, Farley was granted top secret clearance, which was only given to people who were found to be trustworthy, reliable and of unquestioned character. Mm, Thank you. You don't have it. You're on a strictly need-to-know basis. The investigation was repeated every five years to check for intervening disqualifying information. And what do you think that would have been? Hmm, joining the Communist Party, growing your hair long or just being gay? Or maybe stalking people, making death threats or being violent? No, they were all right with that. (laughs) After being honourably discharged from the Navy in 1977, Farley started working as a software engineer for a company called Electromagnetic Systems Laboratory. Catchy name. Mm. So we'll just call it ESL. Well, that's what they called it too. Yeah, they were located in Sunnyvale, California. They specialised in building direction-finding equipment and signal processing systems for the United States government. In June 1979, Farley was assigned to the Joint Defence Space Research Facility in Australia, where he worked until June 1984. It was a joint venture by the United States and Australian governments that provided valuable contributions to the verifications of arms control and disarmament agreements. Important work. Here, Farley provided maintenance of the electronic equipment, including diagnostic and repair functions. He returned to ESL's Sunnyvale facility in June 1984 where he worked on feasibility studies for the United States National Security Agency. So Tara, he had lots of security clearances and his career was going well. But, and it's a beefy-cheeked but, his controlling attitude didn't make him super fun to be around. A former roommate described him as obsessed with always being right and with being macho. Well, I'm guessing it wasn't an Australian former roommate, as they didn't refer to him as a cunt. They didn't, but we sure might. Yeah. Farley also loved guns and action movies, things that went bang and exploded and ripped dudes in shredded singlets single-handedly taking out all the bad guys. Don't we all? If you're wondering what Richard Farley looked like, he was described in a New York Times article as a beefy, dark-haired man with thick cheeks. They weren't wrong. It's a great line. In mid-July 1984, 36-year-old Farley met 22-year-old co-worker Laura Black. Petite brunette Laura was a recent university graduate who had managed to beat out dozens of other applicants for the job. Farley claimed he fell in love with Laura's smile, which is ironic because the way he stalked her for the next four years meant she wasn't doing much smiling after meeting him. It's also such a lame, worn-out cliché of the older man lusting after a much younger woman. Yawn. According to court documents, soon after meeting Laura, Farley made a move. He asked her out, and she politely declined his offer. He shoots. He misses. That should be the end of it. But it would prove to be nowhere near the end of it, Tara. Laura was a young woman starting her career in a male-dominated industry. Accepting a date from a co-worker shortly after starting a job may not be a good move for a number of reasons. Firstly, she doesn't know him. Maybe he asks out every new female employee at the company. Yeah, like perhaps he's dated many of them and he likes to ramp up his bed notches with co-workers and brag about it. This might make her colleagues not take her seriously, and when you're starting your career, that would be the opposite of what you wanted. Laura did not go to work to find a boyfriend. She went to work to do her job, which is what all women do. Pretty much. According to the Sun Sentinel, Laura's initial impression of Richard Farley was that he was frighteningly normal. In the book Obsession by former FBI profiler and unit head John Douglas and crime writer Mark Olshaker, they wrote of Farley, and I quote... 
Rather than taking rejection as a sign he should leave Laura alone and move on with his life, he sees this as an indication that he has to step up his efforts. This belief is supported by messages he gets from movies and television. Think of all the movies in which boy meets girl, boy pursues girl, girl rejects boy, boy persists and eventually triumphs and they presumably live happily ever after. This type of stalking is another criminal symptom of a society that doesn't get the message that when a woman says no, she means no, end quote. They make a great point. Uh, There are so many apparent love story movies that have stalkers cast in a romantic light. And it's only when you get a bit older and watch them again that you're like, whoa. Well, yeah, that's appalling. (laughs) Yeah, That's right. Like that Boombox film, um, Say Anything. Yeah, yeah. And more recently, Passengers. There's something about Mary. Twilight. The Graduate. Love Actually. We could go on and on, but like it wouldn't be that interesting and people would probably be sitting there going, but I love that movie. And, you know, that's cool, but man, in hindsight, what's up issues? Seeing a red light but deciding it was a green light because he said so, Farley kept asking Laura out. Hey, Laura, I've got Brian Adams tickets for Saturday night. Want to come with me? No, thank you. Hey, Laura, have you ever been to a monster truck rally? No. Want to come to one on Sunday? No, thanks. I saw you eating a sandwich today. I'll take you to the best sandwich shop in Sunnyvale. No, thanks. There's no need to be rude about it. Oh, sorry. I I wasn't meaning to be rude. Oh, that's okay. You can make it up to me by coming over to my place for dinner tonight. I'm an excellent cook. Learned a great recipe for beer soup during my time in Australia. No, thanks. Don't you like soup? Soup is fine. Okay, not a soup fan. I could make you something else. Do you like pies? Pies are okay. Come over tonight and I'll make you a pie. No, thank you. But you said you like pie. Pies are okay. So why won't you come over tonight and let me make you a pie? Because I'm busy. No, you aren't. It's Thursday. After aerobics, you just get takeaway and go home. And I've got to say, fish and chips is not the healthiest choice if you're trying to keep your figure. (sighs) There's no need to be rude about it. Here, I got you a present. Not that you deserve one, the way you've been behaving. I don't want a present. There's no need to be ungrateful. Here you go. Unwrap it. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be ungrateful, but I also don't want a present. I'm so tired of you playing these games with me, Laura. Farley manipulated his way into getting Laura's address from Human Resources at ESL as he told them that her birthday was coming up and he wanted to surprise her. Her birthday was not in fact coming up, but he certainly did surprise her. According to the book Obsession, when the HR employee pulled up Laura's file on screen, Farley memorised her address. Then he started regularly driving by her apartment and spying on her. He commenced writing her long, rambling letters about why she should go out with him. By breaking into her office when she wasn't at work, Farley obtained information about Laura's academic background, her phone number, her schedule and copies of her office, desk and house keys. He secretly made copies of her keys before putting them back in the drawer. All the while he was spying on Laura, Farley claimed he did not believe his actions were problematic. He justified them by saying that the environments in which he'd worked fostered an attitude that gathering information was not wrong. He claimed he saw no difference between the government's authority to spy and his ability to spy so long as he didn't harm anybody. He later said it made him feel as though I can, in essence, get away with things that normal people wouldn't be able to get away with. Farley continued to harass Laura and try to guilt her into going out with him. He'd call her on the phone constantly and leave unwanted gifts on her work desk or at her house. 
He followed her from work to her gym and unhappy with just staring at her from outside the building, he joined her gym so that he could watch her doing aerobics. And then, not only did he take pictures of her, he also drew her in a leotard she'd been wearing and included the drawing in a letter that he sent to her, which would definitely not be the way to my heart. He sent Laura letters constantly, racking up almost 200 of them in the years that he stalked her. After Laura joined the ESL softball team, Farley started going to every softball game to watch her play and muscled in on after-game social functions just to be around her. Laura was very uncomfortable with his attention and told him politely that she wasn't interested in dating him dozens of times. Yeah, if not hundreds. She hesitated to complain to management about his unwanted attention because she was working in a male-dominated industry and probably didn't want to be seen as difficult or a diva for fear it would make her co-workers believe she couldn't hack the work environment. The book Obsession also notes that Farley baked Laura blueberry bread and left it on her desk every Monday morning for seven weeks. This may have seemed sweet and flattering to someone who doesn't understand this situation, but it was controlling and incredibly narcissistic. She didn't want the bread, but he didn't care what she wanted. Yeah, I wouldn't eat it. I'd assume he would have jizzed in it and he was trying to make me eat his jizz. I'm not kidding. I would assume that. Or he'd put his pubes in it as some kind of love spell. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Laura is quoted in the Sun Sentinel as saying Farley pursued her relentlessly and refused to take no for an answer, but she never suspected he was a potential mass murderer. Laura said, I look back, he was someone I didn't want to go out with. Very annoying and irritating after a while, but he wasn't an evil bad person. In December 1984, Farley heard Laura was visiting her parents over the Christmas break, so he broke into her desk again to find something with her address on it so he could send her an eight-page letter while she was there. Yeah, and show her the power that he had to find her wherever she went. Yeah, that's it's terrifying. Oh, God, yeah. I was trying to think when, when reading up on this, like, how would I feel? I would feel incredibly fucking mortified by all of this. It's important to note that Farley was not a very attractive or charismatic man. Laura Black was not the first person to say no to him. He would have experienced rejection before this. Laura found out later that she wasn't even the first woman that he'd stalked. Laura moved house three times between July 1985 and February 1988 to try to avoid Farley stalking her at home, but he always found out her new address, usually by following her home after work. According to the book Obsession, in 1985, Farley wrote in one of his numerous letters to Laura, and I quote, I see you as much as six times a week, which doesn't give you much freedom. So I thought it would be nice to call when I wanted to see you, and the rest of the time is yours. But you don't seem to appreciate that. Now I'm thinking of changing the rules. I love that he thinks that all of her time is his, and he's like going to give her permission to have some time off from him. It's such controlling mm. behaviour. Oh, God, yeah. A number of Laura's co-workers at ESL noticed Farley's behaviour towards her. Yeah, well, he did have the subtlety of a Peppy Le Pew cartoon. Some of them spoke to Farley about it and tried to convince him to leave her alone. When they did this, he either lied about being in a relationship with her, essentially told them to fuck off, or happened to mention his extensive gun collection to them in a threatening way. After 15 months of constant escalating harassment, Laura decided to speak to HR about Farley. In October 1985, she met with HR representative Jean Tuffley. Who preferred to be called Linda? Mm, no, not in this case, no. 
According to the book Obsession by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker, seeking intervention on a stalker can either make them back off or dig in even harder. So if the intervention happens early in the stalking, it's far more likely to be effective in making them just back the fuck off. The earlier the better if you're going to go that route. After speaking with Laura about Farley's harassment of her, Jean from HR scheduled a meeting to discuss the complaint with him. During the meeting, Farley pretended to be a good boy who would straighten up and fly right. He agreed to stop sending letters and presents to Laura and following her home. But a month later, he was up to his old tricks. In January 1986, Farley's supervisor, Charles Lindauer, and Jean from HR met with Farley about his continuing harassment of Laura and issued him with a written warning. He was also told that he needed to attend counselling. After this meeting, Farley hung around Laura's flat and confronted her in the parking lot. He told her about his extensive gun collection and how good he was at using them. Oh, that's attractive. Surely she went to dinner with him after that. Oh, yeah. They got married. No, fuck that, mate. No. Because abusive narcissists never get tired of playing the victim, he also sent her more letters telling her how much he cared for her and accusing her, of course, of playing games with him. He claimed that he'd never threatened Laura and he knew that she knew that. Oh, my God. He's the one playing games. Oh, for sure. It's Gaslighting 101. I'm sure it's familiar behaviour to anyone who's ever been in an abusive relationship too. Like, it's one of the fundamentals. He also wrote to Laura that Jean from HR, get this, he reckons she shouldn't have sent him to counselling as there was nothing wrong with him, but he said that instead she should have sent him and Laura to a marriage counsellor to find out why they fought like an old married couple. That was not what was happening here. It sure wasn't. The weekend after Farley threatened Laura in her apartment parking lot, she received a letter from him that comfortingly told her he would not kill her, but instead referenced, and I quote, a whole range of options, each getting worse and worse. The letter doubled down on his threat, saying, I do own guns and I'm good with them. And he then told her not to push him. How is she pushing him? By not doing what he wants her to do, I guess. That's not pushing someone. Oh, I know. Welcome to womanhood. The letter went on to say, Pretty soon I'll crack under the pressure and run amok destroying everything in my path until the police catch me and kill me. According to court documents, in mid-February 1986, Farley popped by Jean from HR's office and told her that ESL had no right to control his relationships with other people. Jean reiterated to Farley that sexual harassment was against the law and that if he didn't stop harassing Laura Black, he would lose his job. Jean from HR later testified that Farley calmly said if we terminated him, he'd have nothing to live for and that he had guns and he wasn't afraid to use them and it would be over for him and he'd take people with him. When Jean asked him, Rich, are you saying that you would kill me? Farley replied, yes, but I would take others too. Jean spoke to her supervisor, John Allen, about the meeting with Farley and her fear of what he might do. After this meeting, Jean did not interact with Farley. Instead, Allen took over talking to him. So he's allowed to give death threats to HR? Boys will be boys. What kind of company is this? The kind of company that allowed death threats against HR and others. Yeah, look, no wonder he felt so entitled. They let him get away with whatever he wanted to do. And they also effectively stopped Jean from being able to do her job by being like, oh, well, we won't fire him. We'll just, why don't you stop talking to him? 
In late February, Farley asked ESL Laboratory Manager Eva Fatoni to meet with him. Farley told Eva he was worried Laura might take out a restraining order against him. Eva recommended Farley leave Laura alone because he was jeopardising his job. Farley responded that he had every right to see Laura wherever and whenever he wanted. When Evor told him Laura was on the verge of getting a restraining order, Farley said he had guns and he wasn't afraid to use them. Look, he's told so many people that at this point that he should probably just get it printed on a T-shirt to save himself some time. Laura was worried getting the courts involved would make things worse for her. She said, and I quote, I was afraid that a restraining order would not protect me and might set him off. In March of 1986, Cindy Lauper released the album True Colours. It wouldn't be long before people saw Farley's true colours. <laughs> Dude. It was a good segue. Yeah, was it? Also in March 1986, a supervisor told Farley he had heard that HR was involved in a situation where he was hassling a girl during working hours. The supervisor told Farley that it could cost him his job. He explained to Farley that when he was at work, he needed to be at his workstation and just do his job. Wow, what a revolutionary concept. It's good advice, isn't yeah. it? The supervisor later testified that in response, Farley was really angry and claimed, I don't care, they can't hurt me, I'm not afraid of them. On May 2nd, 1986, due to a decline in his performance and not due to him stalking Laura or death threats against Gene from HR... ESL fired Farley's ass effective immediately. <sighs> this wasn't bad news for him entirely because now he could stalk Laura full time. He continued to write to Laura and call her and he kept going to her softball games and aerobics classes and he was frequently seen loitering in the ESL parking lot. So Farley lived in a flat that he rented from friend and ESL co-worker Linda Walden. However, he still tried to get the manager at Laura's apartment complex to let him rent the apartment next door to hers. When Laura found out, this caused her to move yet again, but he tracked her down by following her home from work again. In early September 1986, Farley began dating a woman named Mei Chang. Hey, baby. The couple ended up getting engaged and moving in together. But unbeknownst to May, he was still harassing Laura and his new relationship did nothing to tone it down. <sighs> On July 10th, 1987, he wrote to Laura warning her not to obtain a restraining order. His letter stated, It might not really occur to you how far I'm willing to go to upset you if I decide that's what I'm forced to do. In early October 1987, in yet another letter to Laura, he wrote, I've nothing else to lose now but my life, so don't try pushing me any further. But he's engaged to someone else. I know, he's engaged, we're outraged, and there's still a hell of a lot more to this story. In another one of his letters, he set up a date with Laura that she hadn't agreed to go on and used it as an excuse to show up at her house dressed to go out. When she refused to go, he again accused her of playing games with him. See, Laura couldn't win. Uh, calling him to tell him that she would not be going on a date with him would have played into his hands by making her communicate with him, and he would see that as her encouraging his contact. This case is so goddamn frustrating. I know, and it just gets worse. While out of work and running out of money, he wrote to Laura telling her, either I get a job or I live with you. There is no alternative. Thankfully, he got another job at a place called Covalent Systems Corporation, which unfortunately was also in Sunnyvale. 
In November 1987, Farley met up with his mate and former ESL co-worker Thomas Birch. Farley told him that he owed the IRS $30,000 and that they were going to take it out of his wages. He also said that if the IRS was not willing to give him some slack, that he didn't have anything to live for. He's such a drama queen. Farley brought up the shooting massacre at a McDonald's restaurant in San Sidro and said, I wonder what they'd do or, or what they'd think if I did something like that. Birch interpreted they to mean ESL, but he did not believe Farley was capable of doing something like that. The same month, Farley wrote to Laura saying, This is going to escalate because he believed that she thought he was a joke. He ordered her not to show his letters to anyone because they might do something stupid, which would make me do something stupid, and it would spiral beyond any hope of recovery. The same month, the topic of shooting up ESL was discussed during a conversation Farley had at a delicatessen with friends and former ESL co-workers Gerald Hurst and Larry Kane. Hurst later testified that Farley asked whether his girlfriend Laura was still working at ESL and where her new office was located. Kane described to him where in the M5 building Laura now worked. Farley went on to slag off ESL's management and Hurst, who wasn't too happy with them either, said, Oh, what's it going to take to wake him up? Some madman to come in here to shoot the place up? Hurst later testified that as he left the table to get more coffee, he heard Farley say, I might do it. We'll be back with a conclusion of homicidal tantrum, the ESL mass shooting after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Barney Black, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Callie G, and she wrote to us about the documentary Manhunt, Deadly Games. And she writes, Hello, Tara and Barney. Hello. Hello, Kelly. My name is Kelly, and I finally have a True Crime Nerd Time submission. I am so excited to share this with you. My husband and I recently watched Manhunt Deadly Games, and I would highly recommend watching. This 10-part miniseries is about the 1996 bombing of the Olympic Games in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not sure if you remember this, but security guard Richard Jewell is a person who had spotted the suspicious backpack and alerted the local authorities. Together, Richard and the local authorities removed a bunch of people from the area and saved all but two people. The FBI zeroed in on Richard, who happened to be hired as extra security for the Olympics. The news media and FBI were relentless in their pursuit of Richard, 
Around the same time, there was a serial bomber who was bombing abortion clinics. The ATF quickly realised that Richard wasn't the Centennial Park bomber and that the abortion clinic bombings and the Centennial Park bombings were perpetrated by the same person. But the FBI had tunnel vision and refused to entertain the idea that the bombings were related. But they eventually listened to the ATF and cleared Richard as a suspect. Oh, the damage was done, though, by then. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, what they did to him, yeah. It took the FBI seven years to hunt down the real bomber, who was Eric Robert Rudolph. Richard's treatment by the FBI and the media was abhorrent. I was and still am angry with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies because I know this isn't the first, nor will it be the last time they have tunnel vision on a suspect. I'm not so sure I will blindly trust law enforcement due to their treatment of Richard Jewell and how they treated the BLM protesters versus the Capitol protesters from a few weeks ago. Anyway, I hope all is well with you and your families. Love what you do, Kelly G. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Th- Kelly. That doco is called Manhunt Deadly Games, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Hey friends, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. I would be delighted if you joined me every Thursday for a walk through the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders of London's West End. Featuring hundreds of fascinating true crime tales you won't hear anywhere else. If you're looking for something different, the award-winning and highly acclaimed Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast is researched using the original police files. It's presented as a dramatisation. Each episode is crafted as a labour of love, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed and sympathetic way. Season 5 has just begun, so why not treat yourself to more than 150 episodes? If that sounds like your cup of tea, search for the Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. Thank you. How can it be nearly the end of February already? I'm not convinced it is. How's your mental health going so far this year? Are you coping okay with things happening in your life and the world? Or do you feel a bit defeated even though the year has only just begun? Do you want to make changes in your life but you're not sure where to even start? We're both big fans of therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as self-esteem, LGBTQIA matters, family conflicts, depression and stress. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. 
And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they've been recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. Feel free to check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website if you don't believe us. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Homicidal Tantrum, the ESL mass shooting. In early January 1988, ESL employee Robert Peterson found Richard Farley lurking in the parking lot waiting for Laura to finish work. Robert told him if he kept up his illegal behaviour, he could be sent to jail. Farley said to Robert that his interjections were only making things worse. On January 23rd, approximately three weeks before the attacks, Laura received a letter from Farley that told her she had to get Robert to stop telling him not to hang around the ESL parking lot. The letter stated, You'd better tell him to mind his own business. He doesn't have any idea what he's getting into. You'd better tell him, I'd better never see any police around me. By February 2nd, 1988, Laura Black had reached the very end of her tether. After being stalked for four long years and never feeling safe anywhere she went, she obtained a temporary restraining order against Richard Farley. According to the Chicago Tribune, Laura's application for a TRO stated, Within one month of my meeting Mr Farley, he manifested a strange obsession with me and began a course of conduct or emotional harassment which continues to this date. I have been afraid of what this man might do to me if I filed this action. The temporary restraining order meant Farley had to stay at least 300 yards from Laura, her apartment, ESL, her gym, anywhere ESL's softball team played and Santa Clara University where Laura was taking classes. The hearing regarding a permanent restraining order was scheduled for February 17, 1988. Laura also sought $1,000 from Farley in attorney fees. On February 9th, Laura Black's attorney, Mary Bird, received a letter from Farley telling her the restraining order was a load of malarkey as he was in a romantic relationship with Laura. The letter said he had proof that he and Laura were in a relationship, including meal and hotel receipts, recording of phone calls, photos of them together, and a garage door opener that he said Laura gave to him. He also said he knew Laura had a secret stash of cocaine and claimed the two had gone away on holidays together. None of his assertions were true. Knowing he couldn't back them up, Farley decided his best course of action was to convince Laura to drop the restraining order or commit suicide in front of her. Both of which were terrible options, Tara. Oh, yeah. Of this selfish and ridiculous plan, Farley said, I just felt she had to see the end result of what I felt she had done to me, not just read about it. In the meantime, he stocked up on weapons with high-capacity firepower and shit tons of ammunition. Farley had no trouble buying them as he did not have a criminal record. On February 10th, 1988, Laura's attorney Mary Bird called Farley's bluff and sent him a notice requesting he bring his so-called proof of a relationship with him to court on February 17th. The same day, according to David Walker of Firing Range Target Masters West, Farley rented a lane at the shooting range and requested six man-shaped targets. He also bought 13 boxes of shotgun and pistol ammunition. 
The next day, he came back and bought 1,000 rounds for his 357 Magnum handgun, as well as hollow points for his 9mm handgun and some 380 hollow point bullets. He was also seen brushing up on his shooting skills at other firing ranges. On February 9th, Farley went to Santa Clara University where Laura was studying part-time. He spoke to the secretary of Father Rewok, the president of the university, and insisted on seeing him. When she told him Father Rewok was out of the office and asked him if he wanted to leave a message, Farley smiled sarcastically and said in a cocky manner that it didn't matter anyway because Father Rewok was always going to remember his name. Let's not forget that Farley was still engaged and living with a woman named Mei Chang. According to court documents, their 1988 Valentine's Day plans consisted of them watching the movie Rambo together. During the movie, Farley was particularly excited by the weapons used and kept pointing out how awesome they were to Mei Chang. That's so romantic. Oh, yeah. On February 15th, Farley rented a motorhome with a bad cheque that was returned for insufficient funds. He later claimed in court that he planned to drive the motorhome to ESL and wait for Laura to finish work. Then he said he was going to intimidate Laura into getting into the motorhome with him so he could take photos of them together. This was supposed to prove to the court at the restraining order hearing the next day that they were in a relationship. He also said he wanted to show her his huge gun collection to scare her out of appearing in court at all. Farley claimed that if none of his plans worked, he was going to kill himself in front of Laura. Now we're calling epic bullshit on what Farley alleged his plans were. Let's pretend that we believe him for even half a second. What are all the bullets for? He had over 2,000 rounds of ammunition with him. Well, that's right. How many bullets do you need to kill yourself? Like one, really. Let's say two in case one misfires. Mm -hmm. But he had over 2,000 rounds. Why? Even if he wanted to drag Laura into the motorhome and intimidate her with all the weapons, does he really expect us to believe she'd grab them and check if they were loaded? There's no way! The only reason for all that ammo is that he planned to shoot up ESL and murder the people who worked there. The motorhome also had four gallons of gasoline in containers. He had plans for that too. On February 16, 1988, the day before the court case about a permanent restraining order was due to take place, Farley put his heinous plans into action. But first, he went to Jack in the Box for breakfast. No homicide until you finish your grande sausage breakfast burrito. Then, according to the book Obsessed by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker, Farley got all dressed up in army fatigues, an ammunition vest and, of course, a headband because he's suburban budget Rambo. Farley later testified he was wearing his 380 in front, the ammo pouch in front, 357 Magnum to my right side, the 22 Magnum behind it, a large buck knife behind that, numerous clips around the other side, and my vest, my 9mm, my two shotguns, and I tied a cord around the 22-250 and just draped it over me. He then put on his left leather glove and popped in some earplugs. At around 2.50pm, Farley drove the rented motorhome, loaded up with guns and ammunition, into the parking lot at ESL's offices in Sunnyvale. His alleged plan was to surprise Laura when she left work that afternoon. 
As budget Rambo, dripping in firepower, walked across the parking lot towards ESL's two-storey M5 building with a shotgun in his hands, he encountered his mate, 46-year-old data processing specialist Larry Kane. He's one of the guys Farley had joked about shooting out the ESL officers with. He calmly pointed the shotgun at Larry and shot him dead. See, how is this him waiting for Laura to finish work? It isn't. No, it's not. ESL employee Randall Hemingway was the next person to be unfortunate enough to cross Farley's path in the parking lot. Farley shot at him, but Randall ducked behind a car and was not hit. Farley destroyed the card-operated security lock and front door of the M5 building by shooting it with his shotgun. Once inside the building, he shot and killed 23-year-old newlywed Wayne Williams, who was sitting at his desk. As Farley made his way through the ESL building on his journey to Laura Black's office, he shot at everybody he encountered, as well as any computers he saw. On his way up the stairs to the second floor, he killed a third victim. Despite his bullshit claims that he sought out Laura to commit suicide in front of her, once he got to her office, he shot at her twice with a shotgun. The first shot missed her, but the second hit her in the shoulder, causing her to lose consciousness and fall to the ground. Farley continued on with his rampage, walking from room to room slowly and deliberately shooting people and equipment. When Laura came to, she saw she was bleeding heavily. As she heard the gunfire move away from her office, she ran out into the hall looking for a place to hide. On her way, she found her friend and co-worker, 27-year-old Glenda Moritz, lying on the floor, dying of her gunshot wounds. She also saw 49-year-old software designer Helen Lamparda lying face down nearby. She was dead. The whole office was full of smoke from the computer terminals Farley had shot up, which made visibility and breathing very difficult. Laura found a place to hide in another office with several co-workers who tried to help her stop the bleeding from the gaping wound in her shoulder. At approximately 3.30pm, the police got involved when Captain Albert Scott got through to Farley on one of the phones. Captain Scott noted he seemed to him to be a little bit excited. Ugh. When Captain Scott asked Farley whether he had killed anyone, he said he'd shot several people but didn't know how many were dead. Never letting a chance to blame Laura for his actions slip through his fingers, Farley told Captain Scott that Laura had gone too far and that he had done this to make a point. He falsely claimed that she had belittled him and he was committing mass murder to get even with her. When Scott asked Farley to surrender his guns and come out of the building, he replied, No, I'm not ready yet. I want to gloat a little bit. During one of Farley's phone conversations with police, he found Linda Walden, his friend and former co-worker and landlord, hiding under the desk he was standing at. According to court documents, he pulled out the chair and said, Oh, there's someone here. You can come out now. Oh, it's Linda. When she came out from under the desk, he calmly told her that she could leave. Christine Hansen, who was hiding nearby, thought the police were evacuating the building. She came out of her hiding place and was terrified to see Farley draped in guns standing in front of her. She quickly asked him, can I go too? And he said, yeah, you can go. Christine later testified that his tone was regular and he was not angry or upset. Lieutenant Ruben Grahalva, an expert in hostage negotiations, was called in to bring the siege to an end. Farley asked Grijalva to tell Laura that her attorney had given her bad advice and that he was sorry that they weren't there too so he could kill them. He told the negotiator that if she'd gone out with him one time, none of this bloodshed would have happened. 
Well, that's incorrect because what this really is is a homicidal tantrum. Oh, big time. There's no power in this at all. Ever the victim, Farley said, she got me fired and I wasn't going to let her do anything more to me. Farley told the negotiator he'd gone to the second floor and shot Laura, but he wanted her to live so she could remember what had happened. He said he knew what he'd done was wrong and that he had to die because of it. He talked about killing himself or having the police kill him, but said he was worried that the police would only wound him and he didn't want to suffer. Oh, he didn't want to suffer. Call a wambulance. Neither did anyone else, dickhead. Exactly. Farley stated that he was not crazy and that he knew what he'd done, but he had to do it to make a point. He mentioned to Grahalva that he'd come up with his plan when he first received a notice to appear in court. Farley asked Grahalva to tell his mother and father he was sorry. He stated he was not sorry he had shot so many people. The only thing he was sorry about was shooting Laura Black because he wanted her to live and remember this day. He also said that he was sorry that Chuck Lindauer, who had fired him from ESL, was not there at the time. Farley told the negotiator that he had rented the motorhome with a bad check and he thought that was kind of funny. Lol! Hilarious! He also mentioned that he had brought 2,000 rounds of ammunition and four gallons of gasoline in the motorhome to blow up ESL, but when he arrived he couldn't carry everything to the building. Well, that was well planned. Mm. Grahelva asked Farley, was there anything in particular that you wanted to destroy here at ESL? He replied, no, I just want Laura to know that I was serious. I want to do as much damage to the computer equipment and just cause them a lot of money loss. He noted, I'm tired of shooting at equipment and I'm tired of shooting terminals. They just explode, spread glass on me. It's not fun anymore. Farley moved from office to office talking to the negotiator on several different phones, so the SWAT team stationed outside couldn't pinpoint his location and take him out. They didn't have a shot. No, they couldn't get a shot. He kept away from the windows and he moved around a lot. Farley was keen for the negotiator to tell him whether Laura was still alive. When Grahelva said he didn't know, Farley replied, I hope she's doing good. She can't regret it if she doesn't live. According to the Chicago Tribune, Laura eventually managed to run down to the first floor and escape the building. Yes! She was treated by waiting paramedics and rushed to hospital. Laura had suffered a collapsed lung, broken arm and a massive injury to her shoulder. After holding siege for over five hours, at approximately 8.30pm, Richard Farley surrendered to the police on the promise of a sandwich and a diet Pepsi. (sighs) Toxicology analysis of his blood showed he had not drunk any alcohol or taken any drugs before the killing spree. By the end of the attack, he had murdered seven people in cold blood and wounded four others. As reported by the Washington Post, police identified the five men and two women killed during his rampage as 49-year-old Helen Lampeter, 27-year-old Glenda Moritz, 43-year-old Joe Silver, 23-year-old Wayne Williams, 26-year-old Ron Reed, 46-year-old Larry Kane and 36-year-old Ron Doney. Also injured were Greg Scott, Paddy Marcotte and Richard Townsley, who was shot as he tried to help others escape from the building. Oh, it's such a waste. Oh, I know. All these people. Yeah, completely. There's, There's no point to this. Tantrum. Survivor Greg Scott later told ABC7news.com about his ordeal during the ESL siege. He said, 
I was face down on the floor and my glasses were filling full of blood. I thought, I'm the only one in this room. That blood's got to be from me. I've been shot. He remembered thinking, you've been shot, you're bleeding profusely, you're probably going to bleed to death. He said he didn't remember being in pain, even with a bullet lodged in his neck, but he was unable to leave the building and seek help for over an hour because Farley was like near the office that he was in the whole time. He said once he was able to make a run for it, his vision was acting up. Greg stated, everything from the moment I opened the door to the office that I was in till the time I was at the bottom of the stairs was black and white and I knew I could not step anywhere. It was black. I learned later on that I'd actually stepped over two bodies of co-workers on the way out. Greg's experience surviving the mass shooting has had a lasting effect on his daily behaviour. He said, you can't go into a room anymore without checking out two exits. You go into a conference room and you want to be seated next to one of the doors. It changes everything about your life. As Farley was being arrested, he insisted that the police tell Laura Black this is about her. Oh, my God, what a pig of a man. Seriously. When police searched the motorhome Farley had rented, they found it contained four gallons of gasoline, a loaded semi-automatic pistol, and more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition. If you're wondering if Farley took responsibility for his actions or had any remorse, you're dreaming. Court documents state that on February 23, 1988, Farley told a fellow prisoner his views on what his punishment for murdering seven people should be. He said, and I quote, Oh, I think they should be lenient since it's my first offence. <sighs> oh, God. Mm. After the other prisoner questioned his outlook, Farley replied, If I did it again, then they should throw the book at me. The other prisoner told authorities that Farley's tone was conversational and he wasn't joking. So he reckons everyone should be able to commit one spree killing. That doesn't make any numerical sense. I think he means he gets to commit one freebie spree killing, but Laura isn't even allowed to decline a date with him. That, my friends, is a whopping double standard. Just because Farley had been arrested, it didn't stop him writing more letters to Laura Black. you think it would, but it didn't. In March 1988, he wrote to Laura, When I go to the gas chamber, I'll smile for the cameras and you'll know that you've won in the end. She wasn't even playing. Yeah, no. Ever the enthusiastic pen pal, in April 1988, Farley wrote to Chrysler Credit Corporation telling them, I'm in jail and will no longer be able to make payments. I would like the previous bank to know its harassing letters were contributing factors to the death of seven innocent people. Whoa, hold up. I thought this was all Laura's fault. It was signed Richard Farley, mass murderer. On March 11th, 1989, Farley wrote to his friend Tom Birch, who's probably his ex-friend now. Yeah, but probably not super close at this point. He wrote to him, and I quote, I'm glad Laura's okay. I hope she understands if I really wanted to hurt her, she wouldn't be here today. But he fucking shot her! And he didn't even know if she survived. <gasps> At trial, Farley claimed he decided against intimidating Laura to get into the motorhome with him to show her his gun collection and make her pose for photos with him to prove to the court that they were in a relationship. He testified that he decided instead to go to Laura's office and commit suicide in front of her. 
but you can't commit suicide by pointing your gun at someone else and shooting them. I know! He claimed that other than shooting the front door to gain entrance to ESL's M5 building, he did not intend to do any damage to ESL or to shoot anyone but himself. Well, then why tell the negotiator about the motorhome full of gasoline and his plan to blow up the building then? Yeah, he's lying his ass off. He only didn't do that because he couldn't carry it all. And we know this because he explained it to the negotiator and the call was recorded. Basically, Farley tried to convince the court that the murders weren't premeditated and he didn't recall doing them due to some convenient disassociation. Although he had deliberately shot several people before he got to Laura's office, when he recounted the circumstances around shooting her in court, he recalled that her back was to him when he entered her office and she turned around smiling, but the smile, of course, disappeared as soon as she saw him. He claimed to have been so stunned by her brief smile that the shotgun he was carrying just magically went off on its own, twice, while aimed at Laura. He told the court he distinctly remembered not having any idea how the thing went off. With regard to his recorded incriminating statements to the negotiator about how premeditated his shooting spree actually was, Farley claimed to have been lying. He also testified he was not angry at ESL and never wanted to hurt Laura Black. Oh, I've breathed in so many cooked polyester fumes from his liar liar pants on fire that I'm feeling a tad giddy, Tara. Ah, you and me both, dude. On October 21st, 1991, Farley was found guilty on all seven counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Richard Farley and his beefy cheeks are still on death row in San Quentin today. After being shot, Laura Black had to stay in hospital for nearly three weeks. In this time, she underwent several operations on her shoulder. She has since had more surgeries in an effort to reconstruct it, but she never regained total mobility over her shoulder or arm. And she actually continued to work for ESL after the attack. Yeah, I'm sure she's not on the softball team, though. No, she couldn't be. The Sun Sentinel reported that after the massacre, Laura learned that she wasn't Farley's first stalking victim. Laura said... Laura said he did bother other women where I worked and he was in another country for several years and there were a lot of problems with him following a particular woman, but it was never brought to anyone's attention. Laura sold her rights to this story to a production company who made a tally movie about the case. It was called I Can Make You Love Me, though it's on Amazon Prime under the title Stalking Laura. It stars Brooke Shields as Laura Black and Richard Thomas... Aka John Boy Walton as Farley, even though he's not, as the New York Times stated, a beefy, dark-haired man with thick cheeks. Of her decision to sell the rights to a production company, Laura told the Sun Sentinel she decided to go ahead with it because she saw an important upside. She stated, I thought that this would be helpful to other women suffering from the same type of problem. I can't believe the number of women who have come to me and told me that they've faced a similar situation. Her message to those who find themselves a victim of a stalker is bring it to the attention of the authorities, whether it's in the company or the police or women's shelters, and try to take action before the problem escalates. Laura said she believes that if one of the women Farley had previously harassed had done this, he may never have stalked her or gone on to murder seven people. The book Obsession by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker states that according to the National Victim Centre in Virginia, one in 20 women will become the victim of a stalker. The majority of stalkers are men and around 78% of victims or survivors are women. 
Most stalkers are aged from their late teens to their 40s and are of above average intelligence. They are often, but not always, socially withdrawn. In profiling Richard Farley, John Douglas noted he fits the profile of other types of offenders, including both rapists and murderers, who get their satisfaction from manipulating, dominating and controlling another human being. He also said that it's common for stalkers to pick victims substantially younger than they are, as they're often intimidated by people their own age. In the book Obsession, David Beatty, former director of public policy of the National Victim Centre, noted that stalkers often don't believe they have done anything wrong. He said, What's amazing is what you hear as they're being dragged off the jail. I never did anything to her. I only loved her. In response to people questioning Farley's sanity, we're in agreement with John Douglas, who writes in the book Obsession. And I quote, To them I say that this poor deranged mental case was somehow able to hold down a full-time job at ESL and after being fired was able to get another job in his field. Then while stalking Laura Black and working in the programming department of his new company, this poor man who so desperately needed help and compassion was also somehow able to meet another woman from whom he was able to keep his stalking of Laura Black a secret and got engaged to her. As he wrote in one of his letters to Laura, I'm really not insane, but I'm calculating, end quote. No shit. Mm. Oh, ugh. It makes me so angry, this story. What a story. Yeah, yeah. It's it's incredibly frustrating um, and heartbreaking and preventable, possibly, depending on, you know, what we know now about stalking, what laws have been introduced since then. Yeah, look, I don't know, though. He he seems to me to tick all the boxes for a genuine psychopath. Well, he's definitely a narcissist. Um, possibly he's a psychopath. I ain't no doctor. But uh, he uh. was able to keep a lot of his behaviour a secret, but he was also incredibly clear to a lot of people that he had all these guns and he was, like, threatening to... And he joking about shooting up the yeah. officers, threatening people. You know, he, he was a ticking time bomb and it wasn't subtle. Yeah, there was a lot of red flags, wasn't there? There were a lot of red flags, even though he was able to maintain all of the the things, the job, the relationship, you know, all well, that sort of Sort of stuff that makes people seem and normal. it wasn't just Laura he'd been stalking women women for years yeah yeah but because of how that was seen back then I mean it, it's not so long ago that the law was actually introduced that it is illegal to rape your wife um, up until then oh. that wasn't even considered a crime so the law has changed in respect to protecting people but there's you know there's a long way to go but there is. it certainly used to be worse. Well, yeah, let's keep the discussion going. <sighs> anyway, I have a question for you, Tara. Yes, Barney? What is this thing called Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. According to the Queensland Times, Broncos football player Payne Hayes' mother Joan was in the news last May as she faced court on assault charges for the second time in three months. If you see this woman coming, you better run. I'm pretty scared of her. Yes, same. And we both know if we're ever going to be murdered by a disgruntled subject of the podcast, it is likely to be in Queensland. True that. So Punch-On Joni was given three years probation for assaulting a mother and her teenage daughter at a women's rugby league match in Brisbane in August 2018. According to the Korea Mail, during the sentence hearing for that case, magistrate non-punchy Joan White said Punch-On Joni's conduct was outrageous and her criminal history was appalling. 
appalling. Then why did she give her probation? Mm, I can't think of any reason apart from maybe the judge was scared of her too. Anyway, mother of 10, 42-year-old Punch-On Joni, was up to her old tricks on July 25th, 2019. Hang on, hang on. Mother of 10? Mother of 10. Ouch. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. And look, you'll never guess where the next altercation took place. KFC parking lot? Oh, so close. Macca's parking lot. Hey, that's it. See, it seems that Punch on Joni and some of her 10 crotch fruit, who ranged in ages from 4 to 21, got a hankering for some burgers, fries and chicky nug nugs. They were filled with rage when their important mission was rudely interrupted. You see, Joni thought delivery driver Keith Tyler had cut in front of her in the drive through lane, but he was actually just making a delivery. Keithy was a bit surprised when Punch on Joni and her loin nug nugs started hurling abuse at him from the car behind him. Uh, loin nug nugs. Loin nug nugs. I really like that. Oh, well she's done. got a 10 pack. Punch on Joni and two of her ankle biters got out of their car and followed Keithy to the loading dock. Security footage played to the court showed the three ragey Maccas lovers confronting Keithy through the driver's side window. The nefarious, hangry trio called him a fucking dog. And when he began filming the incident on his mobile, they slapped it out of his hand. Punch on Joni held Keithy down in his seat as two of her sprogs went ballistic, punching him and kneeing him in the head. Keithy said, I remember the guy holding my head and his knee kept coming up to my face and I remember punches raining down on me. With blood pouring from the wounds to his face and mouth, Keithy tried to record Punch on Joni's number plate. In response, footage filmed on his phone shows her calling him a fucking dickhead and slapping him across the face. Jesus, how old are her kids that did this? Yeah, I'm not sure. It wasn't made public, but I imagine they were probably quite young or they would have got charged for this as well. Witnesses came to Keithy's aid and he was treated for severe facial injuries, including a fractured cheekbone, a broken nose, broken teeth and a punctured lip. Whoa. Yeah. Keithy said in court he was still mentally scarred from the traumatic attack. He was just doing his job. He wasn't even cutting her off, you know. Of Punch on Joni, he said, she was certainly the most aggressive, not just female, but person I've ever come across in my life. Facing court charged with assault occasioning bodily harm, Punch on Joni's lawyer did a good job of deflecting the blame from her client by telling the judge that she'd reacted emotionally to being what she thought was cut off because one of her sons became a quadriplegic as a result of a car accident. She should have pleaded hangry. Yes, yes. Also, what? That wasn't an accident here? There's no accident, nothing, nothing car accident here going down. According to Nine News, Magistrate Pamela Dow said she was not impressed with Punch on Joni's totally over-the-top, completely wrong behaviour and sentenced her to two years' imprisonment, but then ordered immediate parole. What? Why? Uh, maybe she was scared of it. No, um, maybe it's because Punch on Joni had so many dependents, I really couldn't say. So Punch on Joni refused to comment after sentencing, but her lawyer said her client was deeply sorry and regretted the incident. If she did regret it, why wouldn't she say so herself? Yeah, good question. Outside court, Keithy and his family were in disbelief over the sentence she was handed. But in a surprising turn of events, Punch on Joni has managed to stay out of court for assault since then. Well, that's surprising, but it's not that long ago, I guess. I think it's pretty surprising. 
If she hears this, she'll probably be out for blood. Yeah, well, this is one of the many reasons we're never visiting a Brisbane Maccas again. Oh, don't say that. Not happening. <laughs> That's where we'll get murdered, dude. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Geek Chick 82 or it could have been Geek Chic 82. We've got XXL Historian. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, weekly updates. And Curious Roz H via Apple Podcasts in the USA. Oh, they're so lovely. Ah, oh, yes. Thank you so much, all of you. We'd also like to thank the brilliant and wonderful Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with me. You know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We do. We love them so much. We've been holding monthly giveaways. Our February prize is a Keep Kicking a Gangster Pricks bath mat. Don't you think it's crazy that we even have that? They're made of microfiber foam for maximum plushiness and absorption, Woo-hoo. much like yourself, Tara. Oh, yeah. They also feature a non-skid back for safety. Much like yourself, Barney. That's right. For a chance to win, be a bloody murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to... Vaso Elephantiatus. Hey. My old mate Vaso. Hey. Good on you, Vaso. John Adams. Linda Woods. Kate. Manon Kupink. And Dirk Embury. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. We very much appreciate it. If you would like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, Mm -hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. And who is buying the drinks this week? Alison Schaefermeyer. Hooray! Thank you so much, Alison. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our IMDb listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a hey baby would still count. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps the podcast grow and somehow it helps us stay safe in Macca's parking lot. Oh God, I hope so. I hope so too. Maybe just don't go into them. Follow us on our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our fabulous Fredless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey Tara, you know what I think they should teach teenage boys in high school? Oh, probably quite a few things, but what did you have in mind? I think they should teach them how to deal with frustration and rejection. Because it seems to me a lot of men, or too many men, don't know how to. And this, this is true in terms of um, the crimes that we see committed and that we cover on the podcast and the constantly, research that we do. Constantly. Yeah, well, particularly this case as well. Yeah. They could probably teach everyone it. Because I'm sure it would come in handy. It doesn't manifest in the same way for women the way it does for men, usually, statistically speaking. But I'm sure it couldn't hurt to, well, teach everyone how to handle their frustrations better. Yeah, absolutely. We could all do with a bit of that. I really like that phrase. I'm hearing it a lot lately because I'm reading about this. uh, Too many men. Oh, is that in response to not all? Yeah. Yeah. It's a much better phrase and it works better. Too many men. We need to change this. 
Well, absolutely. Um, but the issue, there are there are issues with this because I've tried to do posts about um, domestic violence and things. And what'll usually happen if you posted a domestic violence um, story about, you know, a man doing it to a woman is you'll get some guy in there like telling you, yeah, but it's not always men. It's not always men. Sometimes women do it to well, men as well. That's not what we're saying. Sometimes women do bad things is basically a response that I always get every time I bring up the issue of domestic violence no. in relation to a case where a woman was the victim. Always. Yeah, we're not saying. Fucking always. We're not... And I'm not saying everyone. I never said everyone. I wouldn't say all men. Yeah, that's right. Just like I wouldn't say all women. I do know what you're saying, but it also it, it, it makes me concerned to even be saying it because of the defensiveness that I see all the time. Yeah, you know, there are aberrations in, in, in society where people do have mental breakdowns and will commit crimes, and I can understand that. They, mm. Yeah, but it's just happening too many times, and there's too many men are mainly the perpetrators. Yeah, this is true. But I, I say let's do it for everyone. I was actually thinking um, in, in school as well, like for physical education, they made us do a lot of like square dancing and that sort of like lame crap. Why weren't they teaching girls self-defence in school? I think that would be nice and handy. I would have liked to be doing that for, for PE instead of like having to do do my partner. That would have been much more helpful. All right, here's a subject that all teenage boys should study. Um, let's call it women's studies. Well, you have two you teenage sh- boys as well, so obviously you're I thinking do. about this sort of thing. Uh, and I, yeah, I do think about these things. You're talking about teaching young women self-defence. That's all well and good, but let's get back to the cause of why they need self-defence. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that yeah. they should, uh, you know, oh, no, boys will be boys, chicks just, you know, learn how to throw a throat punch. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. That's like saying a girl got assaulted. That's because she didn't know self-defence. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I know, but I'm I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, what people will say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what headlines say, isn't it? Um, In terms of this case, the ESL mass shooting and Laura being stalked, I actually read in a New York Times article from the Times, so, you know, late 80s, early 90s, around the Mm. time of the trial, they actually said... After Laura Black got Richard Farley fired. Oh, wow. They said that she got him fired. This was the New York Times. And I'm sure they've changed their tone since then. But when we're rehearsing um, a lot of true crime cases, I get this all the time. There is so much. Yeah, you said rehearsing. When I'm researching and rehearsing. (laughs) (laughs) I can cut this bit out, you know. Um, But, yeah, uh, well, that's why the work of Jane Gilmore is so important because she rewrites the headlines that that are blaming the victim for things. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I love her work. Mm, Me too. She's brilliant. Jane Gilmore, check her out. Um, I worry that people are going to be like, oh, Barney and Tara being so preachy. Go back to just, you know, rolling around in your jorts with your clown fucking face on, you stupid cunts, and leave the politics out of it. But I don't think this is political. This is just no, humanity. This is, yeah, no, this is a human condition. Yeah. Yeah. I still worry, though. Like, when you start talking about that, I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. Because mm. I just, I could hear, I could hear all the shackles go up and the, well, it's not all men, you man-hating fuckers. No, it's too many men, though. Yeah. Look, I, I can't argue with your logic. But you know what? Someone fucking will. And, you know, you mentioned that I have, I, I have teenage boys, mm. but it shouldn't matter whether you have children. Everyone has women in their life. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And But also to be like, it could have been your sister or your mother. It's also like we shouldn't need to have to personalise it that much. No. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't just have to be people you know. Hmm.
But when you see a lot of trends emerging, I mean, you'd be looking at addressing them, one would assume. Yeah. Well, part of the um, the things that Rosie Batty recommended in terms of um, dealing with the domestic violence crisis was based in education. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got to start start young. I you mean, if you, you want your kid to be good at sport or something, you're starting them young. If you want them to be good at humanity, start them young too. Well, that's right. You don't just treat treat the symptoms. You, 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 you try and find a cure for the disease. Yeah, ideally. Uh, a vaccine. Vaccine, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> I mean, I do think that, like, COVID vaccine will work. I'm just saying, you know, here's your violence against women vaccine. Well, the vaccine is giving young men the knowledge on how to deal with rejection and um, frustration. Yeah, and sometimes a healthier outlet for those feelings. Hmm. That's why I, a lot of people get into things like martial arts or sport. Yeah, well, sometimes men are frustrated because they feel emasculated. Um, mm, but I know, also think that sometimes they, they feel emasculated in response to something that wasn't trying to emasculate them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. Richard Farley, for example. I mean, he clearly felt emasculated and like Laura was trying to play these games with him when all she was trying to do was be left yeah. alone. But everything was interpreted through through his own, you know. You know how I was uh, just talking about uh, aberrations in humanity where there's, there's something broken in someone's mind, you know, there's a mental illness there. I think Farley, he was delusional. If he thought that relationship was actually real, that's there's got to be some delusions there. They, he knew it wasn't real. He was engaged to another woman. He knew it wasn't real, yeah. but he wanted to dominate her and have his will be what existed in reality and convince other people yeah, of his he, will. Yeah, it, you're right. He wasn't deluded because he, he knew he was lying. Yes, he did know he was lying. Oh. He was engaged to another woman and he knew it. And he didn't mention to the other woman all this Laura Black stuff. And if he did believe he was in a relationship, he would have just went to court. And said, I'm, I'm in a relationship yeah. with this woman, if you truly believe it. Here's the garage opener. Look, can't argue with that. No, uh, you're right. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't. It was a homicidal tantrum. Hmm. It really was. Good title. Yeah. I just can't think of any better way to describe it. Oh, it is. It's a tantrum. Yeah, that's what occurred to me when I was writing it. You I was know? just like, this is a homicidal tantrum. Yeah, grown, grown adults know how to deal with frustration. and, and Some teenagers, some children know how to deal with frustration. Yeah, they do. Or at least don't go around killing everyone. I mean, they know how to deal with it better than that. You ever seen a really good, uh, oh no, I know you have a really good tantrum from a toddler. <laughs> I've seen a really good tantrum from, from your toddler a million years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he used to get, he used to get everywhere. He used to gather uh, crowds around us. Yeah. Remember when I crossed the fourth oh. wall and told that old couple, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, yeah. I but, shouldn't have done that. Well, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> but they were looking at you as though you were, you were trying to kill the kid. And, the, well, he was just really having a tantrum and you weren't uh, doing anything bad to him. But, uh, yeah. I'm glad- no, I remember that. I remember actually what I said was, don't break the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad my children didn't have guns. Oh, God. Well, yeah. Don't anything arm toddlers. A There's no. a lesson there. Well, see, most people don't actually arm toddlers, so I feel like that one's been learned. Well, you know, infantry comes from, you know, young soldiers, infants. <laughs> not toddlers. Well, not usually toddlers. They need strong enough arms to carry their weapons, so, you know, toddlers with their chubby little arms. Oh, they can make little guns for, for kids, can't they? Yeah, listeners, we just had our fourth birthday. Yeah, we did. And you know what we did? We didn't even mention it to each other. We were probably both working on the podcast at the we time. We were. Too busy working to take note. 
that our uh, Facebook group uh, had a competition for. Um, yeah, we had two entries. Two Woo! entries. Yeah, dressed like Barney or Tara or yeah. both. No jorts. Not a single pair of jorts. Yeah. Oh, well. It's not jorts weather in a lot of countries right now. So, yeah, today is the fourth uh, birthday of our starting our Facebook Oh, group. it's another aus- auspicious occasion though, isn't it? That's right. It's falling off a low seawall day. I, it came up on my Facebook memories. It's a five-year anniversary, I believe. Five-year anniversary. Uh, five years ago, my girlfriend and I were having fish and chips down the beach in Mornington, lovely pa- 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 part of the coast. Oh, yeah. I've and seen this seawall. She it's low. Sat, off, sat on this low seawall and she fell off and, uh, <laughs> and she couldn't quite get back up and... And it wasn't pleasant for her, and it I made it slightly worse by laughing. Slightly worse? You've been reminding her about it for five years as well. <laughs> well, it, it, well, there you go. It's the fifth anniversary of uh, falling off a low seawall. And does she get a gift? Well, you know. The gift of being reminded about it. Yeah, Is that the, the that's gift? the gift. I did laugh again. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a gift for you. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that seawall. It's it's very low. Um, you wouldn't really hurt yourself if you fell off it, I don't think, because it's well, that's really not. It's far quite to go. low, yeah, yeah. But it was so low that um, when she went to sit on it, she fell over backwards. <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty funny for me. For you, it was funny. Well, yeah. Also, you know, I think it's kind of funny. Remember when I sat on that folder chair on the balcony <gasps> and I fell through it? Yeah, you fell right through it and just your legs and arms and head was sticking out and I was laughing so hard that I couldn't help you out of it. Yeah, and I was stuck in there. <laughs> and I wanted to go get my, my phone to take a picture of you, but I thought it would be too mean. I was complaining a lot. I can see the funny side now, but I, it wasn't funny to me yeah, at the time. Yeah, kicking your little leggies. My knees. It was like a Barney My trap. knees were up near my head. Yeah. It, it felt a little bit weird. It would have. You know, like a turtle on its back or something? It was like someone slam dunked you and all that was left was like, you know, from the knees down and your, your arms and your head. Oh, Barney's been slam dunked. Yeah, yeah. Barney does not bend like that. Ah, <laughs> oh, I should know what date that was so that right. we could celebrate that day as well, your girlfriend and I. We could uh, remind you about yeah, it Yeah, Barney is fully collapsible for easy, easy storage. Yeah, well. Ah, <laughs> oh, I'd be hiding you under the bed, mate. Murdering seven people and wounding four others. Udders? Ad, uh, oh, don't don't wound the udders. That sounds no, painful. No, not the udders. No, don't leave that's the udders alone. That's where the precious milk comes from. Yeah. Breast yeah. milk. Ooh. I'm not drinking my coffee black. I want milk in it. <laughs> it's a bit bitter when it's just no oh, milk I don't, in it. I don't, I don't like it black. I don't like anything Barney black. <laughs> oh, come on. Hey, once you go Barney Black, you know that it's truly whack. No, nah, Barney Black don't crack. <laughs> <laughs> Although you will fall through chairs. That, un- that happened once. I feel like it happened more than once. All right, it happened three times. <laughs> I think it was twice, but I like that you've gone there. It happened three times, once when you weren't here. Oh, damn it. In that there's a lesson here. Don't buy it. Don't buy your folder chairs from Kmart. No, unless you want to fall through them and, uh, to the uh, the mirth of everyone else around you. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna start buying you that for for your birthday and stuff. Just Kmart fold up chairs, just in the hope that it'll happen again. His mother later stated in court that there was much love in the house, but the family displayed little outward affection. Ah, a secret love. 
I love unspoken. Have I told you about my unspoken love? It's for jean shorts. I don't which think that's unspoken, I champ. affectionately call jorts. I have, have I told you about that I like jorts? Uh, yeah, I know, I know that you love jorts. They're I think very, you've made that pretty clear yeah, to yeah. everybody by now. They're very comfortable. It's, uh, it's a loudly spoken love, Barney. Is it? Yes. Yes, very. Is it a forbidden love or is it allowed? Oh, it depends how short the jorts are. I mean, once they get up to being crotch cutters, uh, there's yeah. a little bit of uh, illegal activity going on in the uh, underpant region. Yeah, I don't want to have any ball spillage. You know, if one pops out, that's just not right. Old ladies don't like it. A friend of my stepdad's came over once and he had a hole in his jeans right where his balls were and you could see one of them clearly. And I was about seven, six and I remember just staring at it going, huh, most people don't have a hole in their underpant region. And also people wear underpants, but not this guy. Just sol- He was leading with a solid ball out. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, well, it was the 70s. Uh, no. The 1870s. It was the, it was the <laughs> 1980s, thank you very much. Oh, right. And um, <laughs> you would have been about 35. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you old uh, real cunt. Fun. Hey, you started it. I love it. You start with the Tara's old. I give you some Barney's old and I'm the cunt. I mean, come on. Well, you said it and not me. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing unspoken about you. Seriously. Really? It's all been said before. Woof, woof. My name is blah, blah, black. Blah, blah, black. Black sheep said all the fucking wool. Barney black don't crack. I'm an ass hat. There you go. Thank you. I like it when you do that for me. It's very helpful. Barney, Barney, Barney. Shut the fuck up, you can't. There's three Barneys. Twelve Barneys coming down the ah, stairs. <laughs> too many. That's like twelve too many. Yeah, I'm gonna change. Even two's too many. I'm gonna change three Barneys coming up to my stairs ah. to twelve Barneys coming up Nobody my stairs. Nobody needs that many Barneys. Unless they're like putting them to work on a chain gang. Oh really? Well, yeah, you'd you take would enslave 12 of them. all the Barneys? Well, I mean, if I had to have 12 Barneys, I'm not just going to have them running around free range. No. Oh, they'd all... mess the joint up. Oh, imagine the mischief, the capers, oh, the hijinks. The rambunctious behaviour, the shenanigans. The shenanigans of the 12 Barneys. Yeah, oh, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> It'd be like the cat in the hat, but oh. times 12. Oh, no, 12 Barneys. Exactly. Sexy. Oh, God, they're hard sentences. Yeah, I know, so they're technical. Barney traps. I tried to do some, like, make sure you didn't get all of them. That's what I did. <laughs> I was just actually picturing you reading some of these. <laughs> I know. Even people that can read it at, like, a fifth grade level would find it hard. <laughs> oh, come on. Buck up, Buttercup. Uh, Rub some uh, dirt in it. He re- No, I said that. I wanted to say it again. Yeah, because I can it do it so well. Cause it, well, because it just feels so good in your mouth. No, it feels pointy, doesn't it? It feels like when you take too big a bite and you're trying to figure out how to be able to yeah. chew it. Can I fit those? Can I fit these hot entire taco in my mouth? <laughs> it feels a lot like that. Sideways. <laughs> Long ways. Long ways. Sideways. So I like that you had to mime eating a taco then just to try and figure out what I'd said. You should do that more. I like it. I, I honestly do like it. I'm not I, sure how good it is for a podcast. I but constantly I like mime eating tacos. Actually, yeah. What are you talking about? Fish tacos? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Come on, mime that I don't for know us what now. the answer is. 
<laughs> you know you've asked a good question when there's no good answer. That's how wow. I roll. Uh-huh. His controlling attitude didn't make him super fun to be around, much like yourself, Tara. <sighs> I look in a mirror. And I'll see, oh, God, you handsome devil. Yeah, you'd get distracted. You'd, you'd, you'd start touching your nips. Oh. Oh, God. I didn't say do it now. But you made me think of it. Well, you see, Laura, I think the problem might be that you have a very pretty smile and the men around here are going to notice a pretty girl with a pretty smile, Laura. So I know that as ladies we are supposed to smile a lot, but have you considered not smiling in the workplace? Yes, yes. Um, You do have a very nice figure, Laura, and I was thinking that that could be distracting for the men in the office. Um, And so maybe in the effort of uh, team solidarity and us getting all of our work done in a timely fashion, it might be nice, Laura, if you started to wear just an entire sheet over your head and body with some eye holes cut out just of the eye bits so that you can still see. Uh, You could cut out some armholes so that you could still do your work. But I think that might be best for the whole team and just for the culture in the office overall don't you, Laura? So, Linda, you want me to dress like a ghost and cover my whole body just so I don't get unwanted attention? Well, when you put it like that, I understand that that could sound a little little far-fetched, Laura, but but in actual fact, I believe that it, it would be, although a little bit um, experimental, I think that that could, in fact, work. Alternatively, have you thought about putting on 50 pounds? Well, see, the thing with men is they're not really in charge of their emotions or their bodies. I mean, they're not like us. They're not like women. They don't have children. Um, They can't breastfeed. Um, They do not have a uterus. And, um, you know, therefore... I know how men work, Linda. The onus is actually, Laura, the onus is on us as women in a, a man's world to just try not to distract them from the important work that they're doing. Are you married, Linda? Oh, yes. Yes, of course I am, Laura. Do you 19 have... years. Oh, it's been a lovely time. Do you have any children? I have four daughters. They all dress like ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I don't want them to get unwanted attention. I mean, if they don't want attention, then they shouldn't draw attention to themselves. Full sheet, cut out the eye holes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.